Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. Pennsylvania's Governor Josh Shapiro, soon after taking office, issued an executive order eliminating the requirement of a four-year college degree for the vast majority of jobs in state government. This comes on the heels of similar decrees in two other states. Does this government validation of skills-based hiring mark a turning point? To what extent is the private sector getting on board? And how can workers and employers stay on top of which skills are important to have and to invest in? Our expert guide to help answer these and related questions is Matt Sigelman, a pioneer in the field of real-time labor market data. He is currently president of the Burning Glass Institute, a leading labor market analytics firm which collaborates with educators, employers, and policymakers to develop solutions that build mobility, opportunity, and equity through skills. Speaking of mobility, one of the most interesting reports Burning Glass released in 2022 is called the American Opportunity Index, which measures how well major employers are doing in fostering economic mobility for workers and how they could do better. I'm looking forward to asking Matt about that and other recent research. Thanks so much for joining us today, Matt. Vaughn, it's great to be together as always. Absolutely. Well, you know, um, in a prior podcast, we uh, interviewed Byron August, CEO of Opportunity at Work, and he talked about STARS, skill through alternate routes, right? Individuals who have skills, but not necessarily degrees. Now, you have a new report showing that over the past five years, the percentage of jobs that require a degree has dropped by 14%. So there is some progress being made. What is it going to take to accelerate this progress where employers will consider skills in lieu of someone having a degree? Well, I think a couple of things have been winning our sales over the last few years, um, and that has really led to the kind of acceleration we've seen. One of those has been talent shortage itself. Um, we are in an economy where um, even today, actually, we're hearing news of layoffs, but outside of Silicon Valley, you wouldn't know. Um, and when employers struggle to find talent, um, well, necessity is the mother of invention. And so it's causing employers to be a lot more analytical for, in a lot of cases, for the first time about their hiring and their hiring requirements. That's really good news. I think the other thing that's been uh, wind in our sails in this as well is the growing recognition that, that companies have, um, particularly since the death of George Floyd, of the need to build greater equity in the workforce. Um, and so when you put those two imperatives together, one, to be able to find new sources of talent and to stave off shortages, and the other, the imperative to create a more equitable workforce, you've got employers willing to experiment and to take risks. Um, and so I think the great progress we've seen is, has been good. I think the work that, that Byron and Opportunity at Work does has been extraordinary in helping employers chart those new paths and, and find sources of talent um, that they've been missing along the way. What I will say, though, is as encouraging as what we've seen uh, has been, progress has certainly been checkered. Um, it's, it's been a, a bumpy road. We see some firms where there's a significant disjoint between uh, policy and practice. Uh, in other words, 
companies which are out there, and, and I think very sincerely um, saying, hey, we're going to remove degrees as barriers to being able to, to access talent and as barriers to allowing workers to rise. But yet when you look at their hiring patterns, uh, those changes have yet to occur. I think it's, it's easy to say the policy changing things on the ground with hiring managers, not so easy. That's one of the things that's got to change. What I worry about now, if we do in fact wind up going into recession, is how we sustain the momentum that we have. And look, if part of what's been driving the momentum for adopting skills-based hiring as opposed to degrees-based hiring has been talent shortage, what happens when talent's no longer short? And to get back to your question of like, how do we take it from here? I wonder whether there's a step that we're undervaluing before we think about skills-based hiring. And that's skills-based promotion. You see, skills-based hiring is asking a lot of employers. It's the right thing. And I want to go straight there, and I hope we can go straight there. And, and we've had some good success so far. Um, so I'm certainly not giving up that fight. But it is taking hiring managers to an uncomfortable place. If you've always hired for degrees, and that's what you know how to do, and that's all your systems are set up around it, you may conceptually, intellectually understand that you're starving yourself of talent. You may conceptually and intellectually understand that, in fact, when you hire somebody with a degree for a job that doesn't require one, that she's more likely to leave sooner and be less invested in the work. But darn it, I like I have somebody here with a degree. How am I going to turn her down, right? You know, and when and take a risk on what I perceive as a risk on somebody who. Um, you know, maybe only went to community college or, or who doesn't have a degree at all. Um, if we ask employers to start to build that muscle from within, then it's not a risk at all. Would I rather take a risk, air quotes, on somebody who's already in my organization, who I know is good and who has a lot of the right sets of skills? Yeah, it's a risk, but, but I'd bet on someone I know and who I know is good any day over somebody who's theoretically qualified but outside the company. And so I wonder whether if we start to help employers build from within, recognize that the talent lies within, whether that's going to help them eventually start to be more successful in adopting skill-based hiring. Oh, that's very provocative and insightful, Matt. I mean, this concept of skills-based promotion and building from within, because as we all know, I mean, changing HR practices is not an easy task, right? <laughs> and um, it comes down to really some practical realities for the HR team, which is the moment that you remove the degree requirement, for example, just like any minimum calls, all of a sudden you have a flood of candidates and then there's HR people that need to go sift through all those resumes. And then that is upsetting because they don't have enough capacity, don't have enough headcount. And so that's why they begin to load on all of these qualification requirements, right? It's also where you start to, to get into trouble as well with, with algorithmic hiring too. Because to your point, if I've got you know a thousand resumes that just showed up in my inbox, um, then you're going to be more reliant on these AI-based systems to score candidates and those systems are inherently bringing bias into the equation. They're going to be indexing on what's proven in the past versus a deeper assessment of who's got the innate capability. And so, Matt, 
As you think about skills-based hiring, but also skills-based promotion, I mean, what types of occupations, types of jobs do you think are best suited for these new practices? If you look at the percentage of people in the workforce who don't have a degree, you want to look at the jobs that are kind of right in the middle of that curve, where between, let's say, 40 and 70% of people don't have a degree. If you're talking about jobs where most people don't have a degree today, well, look, the system's uh, working and or it's, it's low-skill work. But, you know, there's no need to, to challenge the system. If you're looking at jobs where 75, 80% of people already have a degree, that's where you're going to run into the most organizational resistance. Um, we can say, and it's funny, in the world of tech, for example, People love to look at programming jobs. You know, Silicon Valley companies love to say, we don't care uh, if you have a degree, we just care if you can code, um, which, by the way, is totally not true when you look at how they hire. Um, many of them have degree requirements for the majority of their jobs. Um, I think like but, 60% of those jobs are, are degree-based, right? And in many cases, more. Uh, there's, mm. there's some Silicon Valley companies who've been, and I'm not going to name names, but unless you buy me a drink, uh, but <laughs> but there's many of those companies who literally 90% plus of their jobs require a degree, and yet they're very declarative. But when you leave the, the world of software development, software engineering jobs, there's a bunch of jobs in the tech spectrum, from uh, network security jobs and database architect jobs to help desk jobs, and, and there's a whole set of jobs that are really well-paying um, that have significant shortages and that have historically have actually been open. Um, again, even if the majority of people have a degree, there's enough hiring historically that's gone by that's happened in those jobs where you could push the system more um, and have some easier and quicker success. Matt, um, here's a question I have for you. I mean, we know the shelf life of skills has gotten shorter and shorter. So what does that mean if we have a skills-based hiring system? What does that mean in terms of the training infrastructure that we have to have for people to keep up? I think it's a, a really smart question because in some ways, in a market where skills change really fast, and more on that in a second, being able to find the talent that you need means that all hiring needs to be skills-based. The idea that a degree represents the skills that are needed for a job uh, is, is really a pretty old-fashioned notion. It presupposes that the skills that define work, the skills that define careers, are static. And uh, we recently did some work together with BCG tracking the pace of skill change. And one of the things we found was that the average US job has seen 37% of its skills replaced in just the last uh, five years. Think about the scope of that for a second, because we hear a lot about uh, how many jobs are going away, how many jobs are, have yet to be born. There was some silly study that came out of one of the big consulting houses a few years ago that said that 70% of us are going to be in jobs that don't exist yet by the year 2030. Well, there's still seven years on the clock, but there doesn't seem to be very much sign of that. Um, but what we do see is that in almost every job, people need very different skills um, from what they needed before. And so... That means that everyone, first of all, needs a new mechanism to acquire skills on the fly. 
especially because a lot of the skills that jobs are absorbing are from across domains. They're sort of orthogonal to the traditional definition of those jobs. Uh, marketing people now need data skills, right? That's not something you just learn as you go. So A, people need to be able to acquire new skills on the fly. B, they need to have some mechanism for representing them, for signaling them. So employers know that they have them. And C, employers need mechanisms for being able to um, identify those skills, the skills that they need and the skills that people bring with them, and to match more efficiently. And so talking about efficiency, what's so important about having the kind of labor market data that you have been involved in uh, producing for so long? I mean, what does it actually do for workers, employers, or policymakers? You know, in the world of work, we're used to thinking about uh, talent as a commodity. It's even inherent in the term human resources, right? These are resources that we can, can leverage, or the more modern term, which is human capital. Uh, again, this is, on the one hand, uh, it's, it's not wrong to say that workers are every bit a contributor to output as the tools and plant that you have, um, as the money that finances the whole thing. But on the other hand, it does suggest that workers are, are commodities, that they're replaceable. Um, and so the ability to, on the one side, say, okay, how do we make the value of human work worth more? Comes down to being able to understand um, the interplay between roles and skills. What skills are making jobs um, harder to fill? What skills make them cost more? What skills are fast emerging? What skills are on the frontiers of a role? Um, and you need to be able to see that in real time. And conversely, um, you know, if you take, for example, the world of education, educators put students first. It's what they, they do, it's what they should always do. But as a result, we tend to bristle a little bit about the idea of talking about careers and vocations and the like. But yet, if students feel that education is a bridge to opportunity, then putting students first means putting opportunity first. And these data are about providing that insight. Where is the opportunity? What are the skills? What are the credentials that unlock that opportunity? Um, how do you measure the distance between people and opportunity? And so you know, I'm very proud of what we built at Lightcast in developing a data set um, that brings really tremendous insight to understanding the landscape of talent on the one side, the landscape of opportunity on the other side. Um, very proud of the work we're now doing at the Burning Glass Institute, which is an independent nonprofit research center at really being able to um, build on top of those data to develop new new insights and new models. Well, one of the Institute's uh, latest product is this American Opportunity Index that I referenced earlier. You took a look at America's 250 largest public companies based on the real-world outcomes of their employees in roles open to non-college graduates. And what did you learn? So one of the things that we learned is just what a big role employers play in uh, the vitality of the American dream, in whether their workers move up. You know, when we talk about upward mobility, most of the time we tend to index on what workers do and the choices that they make. Um, did this person pursue a degree? Did this person kind of take some of the, the right steps? What kind of background they find themselves in? Are they living in a rural environment or an urban environment? You know, do they have grit or do they not have grit? 
But it turns out that there is a bunch of factors that workers don't necessarily control. Joe Fuller, my co-author in this uh, at Harvard Business School, and I did some prior work where we found that two workers who work for directly competing firms in the same role can have entirely different prospects for upward mobility. And so what we set out to do with the American Opportunity Index is to measure that. We wanted to see um, how much of a role companies play in the upward mobility of their workers at a time when um, we're all anxious about the continued vitality of the American dream. Uh, you know, we know that uh, from, from some of Raj Chetty's work that people born in the 1940s, over 90% of them could expect to do better than their parents. Um, of people who are born in the 1980s, that's, that's at best even odds. And so um, the American Opportunity Index follows 3 million people who are working in Fortune 250 companies five years ago and uh, in roles, as you said before, that are open to those without a college degree. And it follows their careers over the course of five years. And we created a set of measures for understanding their progress. How fast did they rise? Um, how quickly did it take them to get a promotion? When they left the company, did they leave and go into a better job or did they wind up stuck? When the company was hiring people into jobs, are they more or less likely than their peers to uh, hire people from outside the company? We also looked not only, by the way, at mobility, but we looked at pay, of course, um, because that's terribly important to workers' ability to stay on the ladder. And we looked at their access to jobs. Can they even get on the ladder? relative to other employers hiring for the same role? Is this employer um, more or less likely to give opportunities to people without degrees? Is it more or less likely to hire people without work experience? And we put that all into a blender, so to speak, um, and came out with an overall ranking. But we also, uh, we broke it out because one of the things we found when we put this all together, you know, you saw some uh, an interesting mix of companies, by the way, who rose to the top, the AT&Ts on the one side, but also PG&E, Southwest Airlines, Liberty Mutual, others, and some very different companies from one another. But one of the things that we realized as well is that not every uh, worker is looking for the same things and values the same things. And similarly, not every employer um, is delivering for workers in the same way. Take, for example, some of the companies that we're used to thinking of as great employers, great places to work. We've probably seen them at the tops of some, you know, kind of lists of uh, best places to, to launch a career or whatever. And some of those companies actually aren't necessarily the best places for mobility. And it, and it actually makes sense. Um, you know, if you're at a company where nobody ever leaves, they pay people really well, people, you know, tend to stick around a long time. Well, what would the American workforce look like if nobody ever retired, right? You know, you'd never have a chance to move up if you're younger. And so um, we wanted to make sure that we were, we were kind of refracting that, showing the different ways in which companies facilitate movement for their, for their workers. It was really interesting because one of the things we found was that there's a, a lot of good practice out there. We found that um, 160 out of, out of the 242 companies we ranked were on one of our six top 50 lists out of the, the full group. Um, so a lot of good practice, and at the same time, there was nobody who was really roundly acing it on all the dimensions we measured. Um, there's a lot of work to do for everyone. Well, when I opened your report, I actually found one of the employers that I had worked for, which you mentioned PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, and that's where I got my start in workforce development, Matt. 
they had the intent of wanting to build a much more inclusive workforce. But as we talked about earlier, there were just a number of HR practices that were not conducive to doing that. So uh, it's being able to look at yourself as, as well as putting together some, some best practices and incorporating. And I'm glad they made it onto your list. I think, you know, one of the things we've seen as we look at the kinds of companies who we profiled, you know, who were rising to the top, and we've started to look at, you know, what are the practices that distinguish them? The Opportunity Index itself, by the way, is, is um, very intentionally agnostic to practice. Um, we wanted to create a yardstick precisely because some of the the truths that we hold to be self-evident about what are the good practices, what defines a good employer may not actually be truths at all. And so we said, okay, let's actually just, let's not look at inputs, let's look at outcomes. Um, But now that we have the yardstick, we started to dig in. And one of the things that um, has really uh, registered loud and clear is that there's a, to your point about intent, there's a different mindset about the companies who are at the top of the list. Certainly there's practices uh, that are, are common in terms of investing in your workers, making more skill-based training available as opposed to just compliance or system training, you know, having clear paths to promotion and so forth. But there's a lot of companies who at least nominally tick those boxes. Um, in fact, um, Joe, my co-author, has done some great work interviewing CHROs and then interviewing their employees. And you know, you'll find very different perspectives on, on what's going on inside a company. And I think that's not because CHROs are, are lying. I think they just haven't necessarily um, really promoted all the resources that are available. But underlying the practice, as I'm saying, is, is that intent you were describing, is the mindset. And that's this. It is actually kind of hard to look at people inside your organization not as the job that they're doing, but the job that they could be doing. It's hard to look at that person in accounting and say that she could be a cyber analyst. That ability to see potential in people throughout your workforce um, takes a different kind of mindset. Well, historically, this has been called mentorship, right? So if some, <laughs> yes. if you have a mentor who sees that potential, then they, they may create that opportunity for you to slip into those shoes. And how do you systematize that inside a company? That is a good question. Well, hopefully uh, we get more creative as talent becomes more scarce. Now, Matt, um, this week, Burning Glass and Coursera unveiled a new planning tool for employers called the Skills Compass. It identifies five categories of skills and weighs them against factors such as value, durability, and ease of acquisition. Uh, Give us more detail on what you had hoped for employers and what they could do with this tool. I'm very excited about this framework precisely because it's a really nice way of helping to drive better optimized, better informed decisions about which skills to invest in. And whether that's employers thinking about what skills to invest in in their workforce, um, or whether ultimately I hope we, we turn that around to expose it for workers themselves. As you said, we focused on three core dimensions, um, which I think are pretty simple to understand, even if I can tell you there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears associated with actually measuring them in a quantitatively well-structured way. Um, But those are these. Um, How much of a boost does a skill give your career? How valuable is it? Number one. Number two, how lasting is that value? How durable is that skill? 
And number three, how quick is it to acquire? It's not hard to understand those dimensions. And yet, um, when you put them together, it allows you to start to dimensionalize the choices that you might have in front of you. You know, I hate to be the, the bearer of bad tidings, but if you look for the skills that um, are top of all three of those dimensions, there's no set of skills that are all three. There's no skills out there that are really high value once you acquire them, that l- the value lasts a long time and you can acquire them really quickly. Um, no free lunch, no silver bullets in, in the world. Um, but I think we all knew that. But the ability to say, hey, look, here's something I'm going to invest in because it'll give me a quick hit. Um, It might be the quick hit I need in my career or maybe the quick hit I need in my workforce to make sure that, you know, we have the talent that we need. It's, you know, is that the technology we're going to be using in two years from now? Probably not. But it's really valuable. It's hard to acquire today. And it's really easy to train people up in. Great. Here's a set of skills which... Um, are going to be, you know, are, are going to be worth the slog. Yeah, it's going to be hard. Yeah, it's going to take time. But that's a skill which will provide decent boost and it'll stay with you. It'll be worth it, right? Being able to look at those kinds of dimensions and then conversely some negative dimensions, right? Here's places where you're not going to likely get a good ROI on your education um, helps you be a better informed consumer, a better informed agent in your own success. Well, Matt, as I hear you talking and the analytical approach that you're taking, I wonder, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that are in my same boat, which is I have a high school senior and I have a college uh, student. Hmm. If no skill set hits all three, any advice to someone who's starting their career versus maybe mid-career? My friend, Lori Leshen, who's now running the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, has a wonderful term, so all props to her on this. Um, She talks about timely and timeless skills. And I think that uh, this is really a case of figuring out the right balance at different points in your career. And when I say timeless skills, I'm talking about skills that like writing, like uh, collaboration, like research, like critical thinking. Uh, And by the way, Interestingly enough, the jobs that are most tech-enabled, most data-driven, have not less but more demand for those timeless skills. They're about three and a half times as likely to ask for uh, creativity skills. They're about twice as likely to ask for collaboration skills, 50% more likely to ask for writing or research skills. The list goes on. And when I say timely skills, of course, I'm talking about often technical skills, coding, data, Um, UI, UX, monitoring uh, patient stuff. I'm going to step into your world there, Vaughn. And so that ability to combine those two is increasingly important. This is the interesting thing about entering a career versus uh, further along. The timeless skills, we sometimes refer to as foundational skills, play a different role than what you might think. precisely because we tend to use a word like foundational. I have this mental image 
of the USDA food pyramid and, and the foundations of the stuff at the bottom, right? That's the carbs. But the, the really important stuff's the protein, it's the tech skills or whatever. Um, actually, people's careers work exactly opposite of that. The further north you go in your career, the more relative value employers place on the foundational skills. But that said, the timely skills continue to be relevant as well, just for different ways, right? So the timeless skills, as you go further along, they're the skills that allow you to acquire new skills. They're the skills that allow you to become a leader. Um, they're the skills that allow you to relate things to business problems, um, which you may not be, you may be further removed from when you first start. So when you're first coming in, you need the timely skills because that's what's going to allow you to get on the ladder we can wish that employers would train you up in those, and some employers say they do. But the reality is, is that in a generation where people leave um, really quickly, and who can blame them, right? The employers have also been very casual in their approach to, to work relationships. Uh, they, they hire and fire at will. But if the net result is that people leave their work relationships very quickly, well, guess what? It's hard to get an, for an employer to get an ROI on skills. So um, as much as we may, we may blame him, you can't really. Okay, fair enough. But what that means is you need timely skills to get on the ladder, but you're going to need timeless skills to rise. Once you're further north in your career, the timeless skills are giving you um, a really big boost. They're giving you sustained value. They're allowing you to continue to pivot over time. But how do you, in a world that's increasingly data-driven, that's increasingly tech enabled. How do you, as a, a leader, for example, have uh, enough data skills to be able to leverage data in your work? How do you have enough tech skills to be able to manage tech transformations? So you're going to need both. Um, and in, that means, as we were saying before, having a means of being able to continue to acquire both sets of skills. So the, the ability to continuously learn and adapt and yeah. be able to tie things to each other and, of course, the, the interpersonal aspects of, of Doing so. And by the way, I mean, to that point, um, I think it, it suggests a different model of what learning and career pathways need to be. You know, there's a lot of talk in the world that, that you and I inhabit of career pathways. But when you actually get underneath it, what people are really talking about when they say the word pathways is they're talking about on-ramps. How do we help people get into a career? And the assumption is still that once you're in, you'll be able to fly on your own. And some of what, to me, is so impressive at what you're doing in Futuro is um, that you're not just helping people get on the ladder, you're helping people continue to move up it. And that means continuing to support them with the learning, um, with the continued skill acquisition, both timely and timeless, that enables people to keep climbing step by step by step. I really like this framing of timely and timeless. And I was wondering, Matt, does chat GPT change the nature of what is timely and timeless? Here's where I would go with that. The notion of tools um, both displacing workers and making at the same time human work more valuable is not new. It's in some ways kind of fitting that Microsoft is, is the lead investor in OpenAI um, because in a different generation, one could have said something not so dissimilar about Microsoft Office. Most of us don't look at Microsoft Office and see this, this, um, 
great robotic threat, but you know, we've been around long enough to remember typing pools, um, right? There's no typing pool anymore. Most people don't necessarily have an admin today, answering calls and, and typing memos and maintaining a calendar and, and a paper Rolodex and, and all those kinds of things. Microsoft Office has, has transformed that. Um, at the same time, it has made all of us a lot more effective um, and I'd say productive. And so the question is this, it's easy to look at OpenAI and see the potential for displacement. Um, BuzzFeed just laid off a whole bunch of writers because ChatGPT can do the same thing. Um, I wonder if that's a statement more about uh, ChatGPT or about BuzzFeed, but you know, we won't go there. Um, I just did, I guess. Um, but <laughs> but um, you know, the question is this, as with any new tool, how do we beat the machine? How do we make human endeavors increasingly valuable over time? And I'm an optimist. I believe we can get there, but I also think it would be a mistake to underestimate the real challenge this represents. So why don't we wrap up, Matt, by having you just tell us what's next for the Burning Glass Institute, and please do highlight any new research that uh, we can look forward to this year. So we're working on a, on a bunch of things we're super excited about. We're uh, looking at uh, a lot of things having to do with workforce equity, together with some, some colleagues elsewhere. We've been developing metrics um, that are allowing us to get a much better perspective of disparities in, for example, upward mobility based on race and ethnicity and gender. Um, we're also being able to create representation benchmarks. I think that's a, a body of work we're very excited about. We're also very excited about the work that we're doing right now to take some of these core ideas and see them play out on the ground. How do you, inside a city or a state, identify the jobs that, that really matter. Every job matters, every job brings dignity. But there's some jobs that are at a four-way intersection of um, good access, good paying, good mobility to workers on the, on the one hand, pain points to employers, strategic importance to growth, to growth of the economy, to American competitiveness, and which carry with them the potential to broaden equity in the workforce. And if we can understand those, we can then say, okay, where do we find that talent? What's the talent that's not coming along today? What are the skills that bridge the gap? And so we're, we're working in a couple of places um, to apply some of these ideas toward, you know, not just great research, but towards saying, how can we actually create those bridges? How can we make sure that we have a job market that's, that's more equitable that's more effective for everybody. Well, I'm definitely wishing you success on, on that venture. I mean, I know we're going to learn a lot about what, what works and what would be best practices. So thank you very much, Matt, for being with us today. So enjoyed this as always. Thanks for having me. It's so great to connect with you. I'm Vontone Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. <music> <music>